In this week's guest podcast of the week, James E. interviews author Frank McGroarty again, this time covering the second of his trilogy of books about his time as a Butlin's redcoat. And if you missed the first episode, you can catch up on our podcast or our YouTube channel. How are you? So how have you been since we last spoke? Ah, it's been it's been fine. It's been fine. Um, I've when I last time I spoke to you, I was doing the recording of the the audiobook. Yeah. And to be honest, I've only still I haven't got past stage one yet because the initial recording was about fourteen hours worth. All right. And so, but I started like so seven and a half past seven on the Saturday morning, Saturday mm. morning, and I finished about nine o'clock at night. And and my body just, I, I even tried to go on Zoom with my Butlins pals later on, uh-huh. but then um, usually what happens is we always join in with that singing and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. When I, when I came on, I said, "Right, Frank, you're going to sing next." And I went, "No, I'm going to my bed. Good night." <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was I was to- I was totally done in, but I mean, I hopefully I'll get that sorted this week. Yeah, it's a long old shift though that you know to to be recording something. You know, it, it, it is. But I mean, the, the thing is though, the people who do audiobooks are voiceovers. They mm-hmm. get paid a lot of good money, and I yeah. have nothing but total respect for them, because the thing is, you've got to make sure it's got to sound convincing all the way through. Yeah. None of this are uh, ums and ahs and whatevers, and them. Um, you've got to make it pleasant for people to read. And so the thing is, you think because you're doing it yourself. Yeah. There's so many things you've got to take into account, you know. I mean, when we did the audio version, the last audio book, that was about uh, nine hours long. Yeah. And that, and I'd taken about three hours off through mistakes. Mm. So that, right. that so that was uh, so that was basically two days to record and probably about another day and a half to edit. Yeah. And that's always the hardest part, I think, when you record anything, is, you know, if you do have to sort of like re-record and insert something or, you know, edit, you know, to make it sound a bit more uh, believable, if you like. Yeah, I mean, you, you can be your own worst critic, you know, and um, sometimes you get this uh, touch of the uh, obsession, uh, post, you know, the, what's it called, obsession disorder or, you know, you become oh, more and more obsessed. Yeah, I know what you mean, compulsive yeah. possessive disorder. That's the one. The teeth, the teeth are not working today. I don't know what's going matter with me. Um, but the thing is, you become paranoid when you think, yeah. is this is this going to sound right? Or it, even when you're doing the writing, when you're writing it down, you think it sounds all right, but then you start thinking, how are the other people going to perceive it? You know, yeah. are they seeing it the way you're seeing it? And the thing is, when you go over it time and time again, you become blind to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't. You know, things don't hit you when people can look at it for the first time and say, that's not right. You know. Yeah. And you try not to go over it too much. Mm. No, but no, I completely get that. <laughs> but, but, but 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 certainly when it comes to recording audiobooks, oh, it's it's a marathon. But it's but it's great at the end when uh-huh. you see stuff coming out, um, yeah. because it, it really is. It means a lot when, especially when people put reviews on it, saying how much mm. they enjoy it. You know, that's 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 brilliant. Yeah, I must admit, I, I keep getting uh, emails from Amazon you know, offering me free trials of audiobooks. <laughs> and in all honesty, it's not for me. I yeah. much prefer to read the physical book and use my own imagination to, yeah. you know, picture. And I, I always feel that if I'm listening to somebody telling me the story, I'm going to start imagining things from their perspective based on how they're reading it, you know. And right. I might be wrong in that. I don't know, but that's it's just a, my own personal opinion. It's Jack and Ori syndrome, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, though, when we're talking about with the, with the audiobooks, it's, um, 
I mean, it is a performance, won't anything mm-hmm. else. And the thing is, what you're saying is correct. There are people that like the idea of having a book in their hand. Yeah. Some people like the idea of a Kindle. And so what I was trying to do with my books is try and sort of cover for, for the different tastes. Yeah. You know, some oh, people absolutely. like some people like the book, some people like the Kindle, mm. other people like the audiobook, because at the time, and I never even contemplated the idea of doing an audiobook. Yeah. And then when some people said it, you know, then I thought, why not? May as well just complete the set. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's always about the physical book. Um, oh, yeah. You know, having the physical book. But I do love the Kindle for when, well, when we used to be able to travel. You know, yeah. uh, so if I was on like a long uh, road journey and I wasn't driving or a train journey or a plane journey, Kindle's great, you know, to, to be able to catch up on stuff. Every sort of setup has its own merits yeah. because, because there are different, t- there's, there's specific audiences for that particular kind of uh, medium. And, mm-hmm. um, and whilst I totally get the idea, but, you know, the, the, the paperback and the thing is, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I'm, I'm certainly not going to knock tradition, um, but certainly you, you, you've got to show progress. You've got to sort of um, yeah. move on with the times. And that's to say, kind of, I mean, it's one of those things when you do the audio book, it's something you've got to build yourself up for. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. it's, you've, you've got to make sure you've got plenty of the calorie intake up to speed. It's almost like you're trying to run a marathon. You know? <laughs> I can understand that. But when you, yeah. but wait, but wait, but when you do it, it's all it's so it's such so, such a brilliant feeling when you get the finest product. I mean, mm-hmm. I, that's the kind of approach I do, have with everything I do. You know, yeah. when when I'm writing a book or doing something, when you produce something at the end, and people come back to you and say that they enjoy it, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, most people that write books don't try and do it to become rich and famous. I mean, mm-hmm. but then on saying that, if somebody said to me, you know, here's I'm going to give you so many book deal for X amount of thousands, you know. I'd bite your hand off, but um, but when it comes to the vast majority of people that write books, is they do it because they enjoy it, and yeah. um, and they basically want their stories to be to be to be heard. Yeah. And when people come back and say how much they enjoy it, that's all you can ask for. Absolutely. And she she with the audio book. This is something that's always not concerned me or confused me, but I've always had a wee bit of a wondering about it. Is there a similar sort of editing process? to you know when somebody proofreads a book is it a kind of similar process or is it totally different purely because it's recorded well, well there has to be some there has to be some tweaks because what see the thing that you highlighted on about how when you read the book you, it puts the images on yeah. your head but the thing is now you're a pro, you're, you're looking at a different audience mm-hmm. so the thing is what you put it down as a manuscript take away the manual part and it becomes a script right you know yeah you know because you, you, you cannot read directly from the book Mm-hmm. Um, in the form of an audiobook, so things you've got to say. Right, this is a whole new kind of audience. You can't sort of go into the, the certain phrases, or you know, yeah. when you look in a book, they might sort of put certain bits of punctuation in at certain mm-hmm. points to, to for, for for emphasis or highlight or in inverted commas and certain things. You know that you know something like that. So you yeah. have to make some changes there. You know, mm-hmm. you you can't say. I really like this. He said in inverted commas, you know. Yeah, <laughs> no, I get what you're Because obviously, when you're reading um, from the page, you don't really pick up on the punctuation in that respect. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's much more like for me anyway. It's much more like a conversation. You yeah. know, so like I'm like I'm talking to you just now when I'm reading the book. It's almost yeah. like I'm talking to you at the same time as I'm reading the book. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's um. I mean, think also think about I mean people who maybe read plays. You know, they open up, they open up the plays. They'll read the plays, 
mm-hmm. the thing is, is they have to actually see it being performed yeah. to get the full impact what it's all about and the thing is there are people that probably don't look at books they just look at audiobooks mm-hmm. and um so you obviously have to take them into consideration the way you're yeah. putting it across so so you have to basically change the manuscript into an actual script format so you're actually it's you're performing basically a one-act play yeah yeah I and i've done a few of them in my time <laughs> oh, it's, 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 it's a challenge. I mean, I I, I do love challenges. I do oh, love challenges. absolutely. I think I think personally for me as well. You know, you have to to challenge yourself with stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, going uh, to do the radio stuff from home was a huge challenge for me yeah. in the beginning, um, yeah, yeah. because I didn't have the proper kit to begin with, so I had to get kit. And then I made a few mistakes when I was buying kit that wasn't quite up to scratch. So I then had to get more, you know. So it's all about, you know, overcoming the obstacles, isn't it? Well, I mean, when we're talking about obstacles, I will give you the classics. I can certainly relate to what you're saying. Um, I can give you a classic example of overcoming obstacles. Myself and the main man, Mr. Michael McEwen, okay? Mm -hmm. We first teamed up in this, uh, must be about 2006, and we did the shows um, in Fergusy Park Radio. And eventually we moved on to the online broadcasting. And the thing mm-hmm. was when Fergusy Park Radio stopped, we then had to find other ways of recording the show. So the thing was, I would have to travel to Mike's home yeah. with, with a mini disc player, a mini disc, a mini disc recorder. And either he would we'd be sitting out in his back garden or sometimes we'd actually sit in the front seat of my car to actually <laughs> just record the dialogue on there. And so it'd be a case of, Record the dialogue, take the mini disc home, and then edit it. Yeah. You know, and so we had to go, we had basically had to find a quiet spot where nobody would disturb us where we could just record 10 minutes of dialogue. Yeah. And I can certainly relate to what you're saying. I mean, now yeah. it's much better. I mean, like, so I've got my mixer, I've got the, you know, the cinema microphone and all that mm. kind of stuff. I'm trying to move it more and more into this sort of the professional yeah. element um, because um, I'm, I'm at the stage now where I've, I've been doing it long enough to realize that. You can only you've got to try and make it sound as professional as possible, and yeah. that's what I, I try and do now. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, don't mention Heidi High. Yes, book number two. Yes, in your series. Yes, I tell you what, man. See when I skipped my head. See when I finished that, I was almost picking up book three straight away, <laughs> but I couldn't because I had another book for somebody else that I had to read. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, in between time, so I had to kind of like snatch my hand back, as it were, um, yeah. because when I got to the end of it, I just wanted to know what was, was going to happen. That's pretty much the same as when I finished with book one. But yeah. what I got quite overwhelmingly from book two was, and I might be wrong with this, I don't know, but I kind of picked up on a bit of a sense of frustration for yourself and for Terry uh, with the second spell because it was he was kind of being held back a wee bit if you know what I mean well I, it, well, in terms of frustration we I mean you talk about from the personal point of view you had the bit in between the you know, the, the two seasons where mm-hmm. they, they were travelling backwards and forwards because it was the only way they could get to see each other yeah yeah you know and, and so one's in Edinburgh the other one's in Greenock and they're having to travel back and forward every, every, every two weeks to see each other and after being living so close together after all that period yeah. you know then suddenly they find themselves far apart and then when we go to the actual camp, I think we touched on it briefly before, when when you come through the first season, you think, I fancy doing this, or yeah. you know, I, I want to do that. And the thing was, it was you're almost, you're, you, there was such a, a, 
a, a large team of you mm. know 30 odd people thinking the same thing and you had to try and really fight for your corner and the thing was sometimes you weren't getting the opportunities that you wanted to get or yeah. maybe when you did the things in the first season you, it took a while to get used to the idea that it was not an automatic thing that you you, you would get this the same kind of things what you did before because in the se- the second season it was a new manager coming in so it was a whole new ideas mm-hmm. and the thing was you basically it was almost like you had to try and make your mark again even though you were an experienced red coat you knew yeah. elements about the job and there are you will there were some, certain things in the book where the Terry character wanted to do certain things but when he was trying to get into the red coat show it wasn't happening yeah and, and the thing was he was ending up doing stuff that to the point where he didn't feel comfortable doing it and he and he started to get a bit of a complex yeah and to, to a certain extent that did happen to me because mm. then when we did the red coat show in 83 um I felt, I was told right you're going to do the old time music hall and um say oh great you know I'm going I'm because I was always wanting to try and do the singing because the singing was something I did a lot of when I was younger uh-huh. and the thing is when the voice broke I was trying I wanted to get back into it again and then when they said right singing the musical theater uh, old time music hall I thought great magic then they tell me I'm going to dress up as a zombie <laughs> and they made a coffin especially for me right <laughs> and the thing is every night Every week they were putting this white grease paint on me, and mm. it would take forever to get off. And um, and you get the compare Chris Drake would be in the dressing room, and he's getting shoe whitener. He's putting uh. shoe whitener in my hair, and I've got <laughs> and I've got to come on p- pretending to be a zombie. And then when we're, and we're doing the red coat show, they were talking uh, 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 at one point they were sort of giving out the parts, and um, this is one of the times and I made, I did touch on the book about how. Other people were speaking up for Terry, saying, "You know, he's a dancer, yeah. but he's not—he's not doing anything." And um, and eventually they said, "Oh, we've got other things planned. You know, mm-hmm. what will happen." And it ends up playing the part of Fagin and Oliver. So when he's playing the part of a sort of a scrawny, sort of almost like a um, weird creature like Fagin, yeah. and doing the the coffin zombie, you think he's having, he's going to, it's, it's enough to give him a complex, you know. <laughs> and it wasn't until later on that I started to sort of. Uh, the, the Terry character, and it was the same thing with myself. Mm. I started to sort of um, get used to the idea and try to say, well, let's try and sort of, you know, sort of make, make some use, you know, try and use it. And so when we were talking about with the, the zombie character, um, I was starting to put in my own ad libs. Mm-hmm. You know, during the course of the show, rather than being sort of saying, oh, God, I'm being typecast as a zombie again, you mm-hmm. know, because and I used to say I saved our thoughts in the makeup. And, and at one point, all, when people all just saw me in a coffin, I was getting kind of labelled, and and it was a difficult one to try and get a hold of, and it wasn't until I actually started doing my stand up stuff that people the people then saw me in a different light again. Yeah, because with the story we touched on last time about the the Prince Charles, yeah, and um, and it was then up until that point all people saw me was as as this this sort of scary creepy type of mm. guy, and <laughs> I, I, I kind of felt uncomfortable with that. But as soon as I put a set of plastic ears on, wallop. You know, suddenly it all changed. <laughs> it, it was quite. Uh, I, I could relate to um, when you were talking about you know being a zombie. Not that I've ever been a zombie, yeah. um, and also when you were talking about you being Fagin, um, because I once was in a play where for two and a half hours I was a corpse. Oof. <laughs> so you know when, when when you were talking in the book about you know having to sort of be there and not react to what's happening. I can yeah. really relate to that because it's very, very difficult 
you know. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, because you've got to be really immobile. Um, and then when you were talking about doing the Fagan thing, I actually played Mr. Bumble. Oh, yeah. Um, in a version of uh, that particular show. And yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed that. You know, I wanted, I didn't want that part. Yeah. And when I was casting that part, I was like, God. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when I when I got into it, um, and what helped me actually was really watching Harry Seacom in yeah. the movie. Yeah. Um, not that I portrayed Harry Seacom, but I picked up a lot of from from watching him in the movie of how I should actually comport myself. You know, when yeah. I was on stage with the part, so uh, it, it kind of worked out in the end. But the the whole thing with the the plastic ears and the Prince Jack. Yeah, that did make me laugh out loud uh, because it did make me think back again to you know TV series um, back at that time where you had people doing impressions of you know the, the rich and the famous as it were you know. Right. And who do you do? Yeah, and I can't remember who it was. Um, th- there was one person particularly who used to do Prince Charles all the time. But um, it was a guy called Fogwell Flax. That's it. That's all well flags. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking at the time watching him, I thought he was really, really good. And did that kind of help to influence you, or were you sort of looking at it from a completely different perspective? What are you, are you talking about? Why did I do Prince Charles? Yeah, I mean, was it kind of inspired by seeing somebody else having done it, or did it just kind of like occur to you? Well, it was the start. Of, it, to be honest, it, it kind of sort of fell into place because. When I, I think I mentioned it before about how um, in the '83 season I wanted to try and establish a character because in '82 yeah. I was I was Frank the dancer, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I wanted to try and sort of um, put my personality a wee bit more forward, try and interact with folk a bit more rather than just sitting there being the, the having the complex. You know, it's it's better to sort of try and put yourself forward as a character who's up for anything mm-hmm. rather than somebody who's worried about the idea of standing in front of a coffin every week, you know, yeah. and. Um, and the thing was, I just wanted to, I just wanted to try and develop some kind of character because there were some amazing characters once again during that mm. year. And um, we say my mention about Big Joe dressing up as a schoolboy. And I thought, <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to compete with him because Joe was in a class of his own when yeah. it came to comedy. And I thought, you know, just try something that I feel comfortable with. And then when I was walking in the shop and I just saw those plastic ears and um, and, I, and it wasn't until I saw the plastic ears, I thought I automatically remember Fogwell Flax mm. on Tiz Wars. Yeah, it was Tiz was, and I thought, and then at the time you had also Mike Yarwood, and everybody was doing Prince Charles. Yeah, and and the thing was, I thought, well, why not? And I just I, I went to back to the put the, got the ears, went back to the chalet, and I stood in front of the mirror, trying to practice to see if it was possible for I could get away with it. And um, and eventually, what happened was, was I just went down to we went this, this evening evening meals this morning, and I just suddenly put the ears on, and uh, suddenly I'm start doing you know, all, all the hand actions and mm. all this kind of stuff, and. And the punters were buying into it. They they loved it. You know, I mean, I was I was getting sort of shaking hands and so like, greetings, yeah. your highness, and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> and, um, and it, the, the the other red coats could see what I was doing, and they were playing along with it as well. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought it was wasn't going any further than that. And um, and it wasn't until later on, Chris Drake's son, uh, sorry, Charlie Drake's son, Chris, <clears throat> who was a compare at that time, he just. Uh, I think I think I was on theatre duty afterwards, and uh, he said to me, "When I mean, we're doing, I think we're doing the fire check, and we just said, you know, can you spare five minutes?" I said, "I sure." And he just said, "Do you fancy doing that as an act?" And I thought, "Well, 
yeah, well, I mean, I've never done anything like that before, mm. you know, because it was always just dancing, maybe maybe the singing, but never doing comedy. And he says, listen, don't worry, I'll, I'll help you. And he ended up writing half a dozen gags. And he just says, right, learn those gags. And I, I said, we can maybe, and just maybe come, come and see me maybe sometime later on in the week. And I'll maybe take you through some gigs to help you get through the routine. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> well, thankfully, I knew a lot of those gags anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, oh, he was teaching me things about stagecraft and walking on and walking off and, you know, when to pause and all this kind of stuff. And he was coaching. He was such a big influence on me, Chris Drake, um, in terms of trying to sort of get the foot in the ladder in terms of yeah. performance. And the thing about saying, you know, you do this, you will get laughs. And just a case of don't rush it, take your time and you'll be fine. Don't worry about the, how long you're going to be on the stage. You know, just leave mm-hmm. that to me. And um, he's taught me through it. And the thing is, he was such a big encouragement and um, he says, right, the weekly talent show, the junior talent show, I'm going to put you on um, as a, a guest artist during the course of the week. And I thought, well, I, f- I always fancied the idea of doing some of the record show, but that's a great way to start, you know? Yeah. Uh, what I'm doing, I'm not, tr- I'm be- almost been trying to be me. And um, and so the thing was, I'll, he says, right, I'll make sure you're on duty that night. I'll speak to the boss and I'll make sure you're, you're detailed to that show. So, I was detailed to the show and we're a bit there to sort of work with the contestants. And um, so I arrived there about 45 minutes earlier than I should have done. And I kind of locked myself and the gentleman's <laughs> excuse me <laughs> until such point where I couldn't stay in there any longer. And um, I don't, I think it was not so much, the, the nerves element was more of a case of, I, felt I was going outside the comfort zone. You know, yeah. I wasn't worried in being in front of an, going in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. My worry was, was going and doing that and failing. Yeah. That was my that was my biggest worry, and um, and the thing was, as soon as I came on, um, he, he gave me the big the big introduction, and um, and it, it, it was a great introduction. You know, I'll always be grateful for that. And I walked on, and as soon as I went on, I did the opening lines, and people started laughing and applauding. I went, "Yes, <laughs> thank you," <laughs> you know. And eventually, it became it became a regular thing, mm-hmm. and um, and I say I've got a lot to thank Chris Drake for. And the thing was, when it came to doing things like stagecraft and movements and all this kind of stuff even with the Fagan thing I yeah. never it never occurred to me how to do this kind of character before so he's he's taken me through all that as well mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it's such a it's a brilliant thing when you've got somebody who's been in the business for ages so it takes you under their wing and shows you how to do this or how to do that and it's going back to what I said before about learning yeah you know, I learned so much in the first year but the thing was in the second year I was more comfortable in my skin wearing the red jacket Mm-hmm. This was me taking it to a different level as a performer. And it wasn't then, whilst being initially frustrated, as you said, during the course of the, the start of the year, once suddenly I found myself doing a, a, a solo sport at the Redcoat show. Um, and, it, and and I even got used to the idea of doing the ballet routine. You right. know, the, the ballet routine was another thing where I had to uh, suck it up, if you pardon the expression. Um, mm-hmm. Because the idea of me putting on women's tights and dressing about in a tutu, you know, <laughs> But in, in the end, that routine got their biggest applause of the night. But a lot of that, I would have to say, was down to Joe. Yeah. Joe, Joe was the main character in, in, in that ballet routine. But the whole thing, people would actually go into the first house and come back in the second house just to see that routine. Mm-hmm. Because, because as soon as he mentioned the ballet, wallop. And, it's, and you can actually see that routine on stage. Yeah. yeah. It's, on YouTube, it's on YouTube. Is it? I'll need to check that out. Then. <laughs> is, it I, I, the one, I, I, is that a recording of the one where... The, the place had been flooded 
and and you were all slipping, or was it uh, drier than that? If you like, well, that 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 happened. That that happened on another occasion right. when we were talking. About it. See, it actually happened twice. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that we hit the deck one t- one night. This, but then the following year, they did it, they did it again. No, in eighty so in eighty five they did it again. Joe, mm-hmm. I, I was I was I was not a red coat after that. Yeah. Um, and Joe was um, told me about it, and the thing was because he, we kept on falling, and that was the thing that was the story he kept on telling us what happened in '85. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was kind of combining the two. And but the thing with the the water coming in, mm-hmm. that is that is true because we we actually ran uh, around the theatre, and the carpet was absolutely sodden. And the thing was, Joe hits the deck, so we had to basically throw ourselves down on there as well, basically yeah. to give him a, give him time. Because uh-huh. if we didn't, we would have caught, we would have caught him up, and that would mm. be the whole thing ruined. So we hit the deck, and um, and at that point, you know, we might we managed to ad lib there and then. But mm-hmm. what, how long it took them to get the roof fixed, I have no idea. But, <laughs> but but that but that story about him sliding across the floor that is a true story. Yeah, because it's often when things like that happen, you know, that are completely unexpected. If the people that are involved in it react properly to it. Nobody will ever be any the wiser to the fact that it wasn't actually part of the routine. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, though, with red coat shows, don't expect things to go well on the night. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't expect. I mean, there'll be sometimes it will go absolutely fantastic, but there will be times where things will go, um, you know, it'll go basically go belly up. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was touched on in the book where one of the red coats um, took a bit of a dizzy turn during one of mm-hmm. our solo spots. And the the Dracula, I think it's also the next one. Um, one of the red coaches fainted on stage, and um, and the thing was, I was doing the the eighty four. I was I was Dracula typecasting mm. once again, and um, <laughs> I, I actually normally I would walk very carefully uh-huh. uh, to get myself ready, but as soon as I saw she hit the deck, I flew into that coffin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then it, it was then I realised it was a hard surface I, I landed on, and uh-huh. um, um, so. It's not unusual for things to go wrong, yeah. but the thing is, you, you you embrace the unexpected because if you what I what, what you all see, I'll send you the link. It was the the red coat show from '83, the the start of the we have the red coat show always had these crossovers, mm-hmm. right? Now I won't go into detail what happens is, but it is a classic you being framed moment, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> And the thing was, we are absolutely the, the, the audience knew it wasn't that wasn't meant to happen. But the thing is, we were absolutely hysterics, round of applause. The place was going going crazy. We are absolutely doubling up at the side mm-hmm. of the stage uh, because of what happened. And um, yeah. it's part it's part and part of the course, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And did your shows <clears throat> did they use things that could be referenced in a person's mind from what they could see like on TV and stuff like that, you know, or do you think it was pretty much unique? Well, there is, when we do some of the, when you did some of the comedy routines, it might have been a favourite sketch mm-hmm. that you've maybe seen on the telly that's been basically getting done live on stage. Yeah. Or um, like my good lady, she did a crossover. In the one of one of the in the in the nineteen eighty three season, wearing um, a couple of hot water bottles, um, draped over her shoulders, uh-huh. saying, "I'm a television program. Which television program am I?" <clears throat> and he'll say, "I don't know." And she'll say, "Cold it's you know." And um, <laughs> and, uh, and and so people like people, you know, they 
the thing is you've got to make the gags as signposted. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the one thing you want, you don't want to get trying too, too clever because for starters, we never had time to be trying to be clever. You had to know, yeah. you basically do routines that you knew that worked mm-hmm. because we had like the, th- we had, for me, we had did the Red Coat show and um, say maybe the Red Coat show was on the Friday. We maybe had the, we had the first rehearsal on the Tuesday. And the thing was half the show had already been put together because there were stock routines. Because yeah. there, there was a lot of routines that sort of went from camp to camp. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so like, so if you, somebody did a, a routine, if it's, like so if Chris might have picked up this routine that he or show that he saw maybe in Clacton maybe a year or so before, he then takes it to air. I go yeah. say, right, I, I know this routine. We can put that together, and you get it done in record quick time mm-hmm. because you know it works. And um, and the thing is, a lot of people knew that we were not professionals, you know. But the things we wanted to try and put on the best show possible. Yeah. And the fact that people by the end of the week, you know, they become we become pals. I was in the campus, we became pals. Mm. And this is us putting a show on for them as a way of saying thank you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the end of it, see when you took your bow at the end, oh man, it's the most incredible feeling ever, mm. you know? Um, because people really appreciated what, what you were doing. And the fact that the show, they had such a laugh, you know, then you, if you want the professionals, go to the resident review company, you know, they're the ones that really get paid for that. This, mm. was like an added, this is an added extra, you know? And yeah. I know the Red Coats did shows during the course of the week doing different kinds of shows. And there were people who were established cabaret artists away from away from the camp. And so they got their own sort of major sports yeah. and, and the various things. And you get people like myself who basically try to work to sort of step in, you know, sort of step up the ladder a wee bit, just given a chance. And um, certainly I got a lot more opportunities during the 83 season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And th- there was one rather dark moment um, yeah. in, in the book, um, which kind of took me by surprise. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was going to go down the route that it went. Uh, you know, even in the build-up when you're talking about, you know, people not really pulling their weight and stuff like that, yeah, I never expected it to take the turn that it did. Um, was that a real shock at the time that it happened? Well, with the one, with the, the, the kind of situation that you're referring to in the book, um that that was basically when we're talking about the creative license. You know, mm. there was somebody in the camp like that who basically yeah. wasn't pulling their weight, and it ended up being involved in a confrontation. But mm. the thing was, <laughs> the confrontation actually went next door. Yeah. I was in my chalet fast asleep. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I slept through the whole thing. Um, but but the thing is, you do get people. You, you did get people, and I think it could be said by a lot of a lot of the camps. Yeah. There were people who were there. They loved the idea of putting the red jacket on, being the sort of the babe magnets and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but they were not prepared to pull their weight. And um, and the thing was, there, there was this was me sort of um, taking elements of, of people that weren't pulling yeah. their weight. But mm-hmm. the thing was, you had to use that element in terms of the story because mm-hmm. the important thing about that, this story was, whilst I was trying to hold on to the, the, the you know, nostalgia trip about Butlins, yeah. We also had to remember these were two characters as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was also, it was primarily a love story. And the thing is, with a lot of love story, there has to be moments that changes the way things, you know, the way, the way yeah. you behave towards each other. And the thing was, this was me taking elements of that of that situation mm-hmm. and take it to the to the point where, an in, it's an incident where it completely changes mm-hmm. the direction, the direction, not so much the camp, but them two personally. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I think you know that um, after that incident happens, he sort of realizes he's uh, it dawns on him, you know, he cannot afford to be apart from her for yeah. any, any longer, you know, do these two weeks things. There has mm. to be some way where they have to be still be together. 
without having to go backwards forward because there might be some a situation where they, they, they may face something like that again. And the thing was, the, the last thing you want, like she'd be maybe on one side worrying about him or vice versa. Yeah. And it, I, I mean, we kind of touched on it um, mm-hmm. at the start of the book when you had, you had this uh, confrontation at the start of the story. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so the thing was, there was always that element. So the thing is, the old thing about together, we are stronger. You know, together yeah. we can fight, we can, we can achieve anything. It wasn't until that incident happened when you think, well, I can't have, you know, all he was thinking about was he didn't want he, he didn't want to leave because mm. if he left, she would have to leave as well and be back to the two being separate. Yeah. And and he, he couldn't handle that. Mm. You know, he had to he had to find a way. You know, we had to sort of find a way where they're still together. Yeah. You know, and also show the world how serious they were about each other. Mm. And the thing was, the the thing on on the that second book, to me that was an integral. That was a key part of the of the story because yes, I try and keep the the sort of nostalgia bit. But we also had to remember these were two characters as well. Yeah, yeah. You had to be truthful to them at the same time. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, it was it was very much quite a cathartic moment, you know, when that kind of like realization suddenly hits them. Yeah. You know that you know, if you like, the life is moving along a completely different route, perhaps yeah. than what he was thinking of prior to that. But as you say, though, it does bring the characters closer together. Yeah, um, and, and it's, it's the case of what like previously when I mentioned about the first book being a sort of coming of age, you know, just discovering mm. each other. And the thing was, then the second book was all about them as a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and the thing is, he's a, a year older and hopefully a, 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 bit, a wee bit wiser. And he's now starting to think for himself. And he, and he's, and when certain things were happening, he just felt deep down, you know, this was something he didn't want to let go. It yeah. was something, it meant so much to him. Whilst the job was brilliant for him, you know, he loved doing the job and he still had these ambitions and challenges. There was on the other side, this lady that came into his life, you know, he, you know, it was the first time it had ever happened and he just didn't want to let it go. Mm. And um, because somebody, apart from not pulling their weight, decides to try it on her and suddenly think, you know, there's no way I'm going to let that happen. It's yeah. about time people know that them two are more than just a couple. They're serious and they mm. want to basically move forward together. Yeah, I, I was thinking to myself when I was reading the, the second book Ed, as well, and I was just wondering, were there ever moments when you were kind of like putting the book together whereby you had to get somebody's second opinion, as it were, because you weren't sure if what you were thinking, you know, was actually what had happened? Ooh, to be honest, no. Because what it was, that period was such a strong I mean, 82 and 83 was such a strong period for me, especially mm-hmm. 83. That was the year I got engaged. Yeah. And um, and the thing was, the, the certain things that remain in your, your mind forever. Now, I said before, because there was always going to be some blanks in there mm-hmm. somewhere. And so that's where the creative, creative yeah. element came in. Um, there was some characters you had to put in there and um, to try and sort of dress the balance. Because I said, we're looking at two things here. Mm-hmm. We're looking at the journey from the Butlin's point of view. And we're looking yeah. at the journey from the personal point of view. The personal point of view had to have them, you know, the, the you know, the state you bringing in characters and the idea of not just case of focusing too much on them. You know, you had to mm. look at that, like like the Charlie mate situation. Yeah, you know, you had to bring that in, and um, there were elements of there were elements of truth in that in the sense of you know the conversations I, I had. But I mean, I was just sort of taking it to another level. You know, yeah. and the thing is, because people, I, you know, I put it right from the very beginning on page one. This is this is a work of fiction, you mm. know. People say that never happened. I say, well, it's not a biography. 
yeah. you know, <laughs> even, even, even though I know myself what's true and what's not, mm. you know, and um, I think it's a case of, um, it, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, certainly the, um, when we're talking, when we're talking about, you know, the, the, the sort of journey and stuff like that, it's, um, I think I just went with the flow. You know, yeah. I was more I was more concerned in putting together um, something that people read and people enjoyed. I mean, yeah, there will be questions, obviously, saying did that happen or did that happen, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of occasions it did. But I'm not saying what what, what happened. What's yeah. going on? <laughs> the, re- the only reason I was asking it was because obviously, as I mentioned the last time, when never actually been on holiday to Butlins, so. Yeah. That sort of aspect of the story um, was quite, you know, unique for me. Um, although I'd been there like as a day tripper and stuff like that, I hadn't actually spent any time as a holiday maker. Yeah. Um, but I knew people that had done similar things, um, mm. and they had told me stories, you know, which kind of reflected in your books, you know, um, from a different perspective. And I was just curious as to whether or not. You know, you needed to go back and ask somebody, like say maybe your wife, do you remember such and such? I thought this is what happened, and she might say, "Oh no, no, no!" But, you know, it was actually this that happened. Well, this, this, when it came to the actual engagement, you know, that is one hundred percent accurate. Right, that's one hundred percent accurate. Um, when it came to the build, the only difference was in the build-up was in the te- in the Terry's the, Terry and Angie. Um, he, he he basically proposes, right? Mm. The thing is, we always knew it was going to happen. Yeah, that was that was the main difference. You know, we knew it was going to happen, and things right. We're going to we're going to get engaged on that day. You know, mm. and um, the bit at the station, everything was accurate. And right. um, um, but the thing was, he proposed to her. But the thing is, we always it was a case of we're halfway through the season, and we just kind of knew we were going to get engaged. Yeah, you know, but we did make the t- we did say right we get engaged, but we're not going to name any days or that because we can mm. actually get work, and um I, and it was it was just it was a natural. I mean, I said to you before, um when you were uh, for a couple of like, being together more than a fortnight, you know, you expect to send out the wedding invitations, you know. <laughs> I was actually just going to say that <laughs> myself because um, there was I don't know about nowadays, but certainly you know good few years ago, there was that kind of expectation that as soon as a couple announced that they were going to get engaged, it was kind of expected that there would be a wedding, you know, sort of fairly quickly. Right. Um, you know, as I say, it might be completely different nowadays, I don't know, but um, I, I just, you know, I, I could relate to what you were saying at that point, you know, about, you know, and especially when you when he gets asked, you know, have you got in any trouble? Hi. <laughs> It was a kind of stop question, wasn't it? Aye, because I, I, that's where you used to get. That's where you used to get the gag about when you know somebody proposing to his, his future wife. It was one of those modern day proposals. Yeah, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that that wasn't that, that, the thing was with me. Um, as I said, it was a natural progression. We always knew it was going to happen. Yeah. You know, and um, some people obviously were very, very bit skeptical of the fact that you know we weren't in full time work, which is fine. You know, mm. I don't have a pro- didn't have a problem with that. I think it was just a case of saying, right, we're engaged. This is going to happen at some point. We don't know when, like, but it will happen. And yeah. um, it, it was just a, a natural movement. And to be honest, the guys at the camp weren't surprised. Mm. You know, maybe what they were surprised was in the manner that I got engaged. Yeah, you know, that was that was the only maybe surprise of that. Um, but certainly the, I mean, there's been a lot of instances, not just amongst redcoats, but other members of staff as well. You know, when they met mm. their other half whilst working at Butlins. 
you know, so I mean, certainly we weren't anything anybody different, but certainly them. I think because of the way the the way Terry's life progressed, it was it was almost like a natural progression. And I yeah. think with us, it was a natural progression as well. You know, mm. we knew it was going to happen one day. Yeah, and I think well. I don't know uh, how other people would perceive it when they read it, but certainly when I was reading it, um, even before I got in the second book, I had kind of got that picture in my head, you know, that because obviously I knew about the background anyway. Um, yeah. But, you know, I had this picture in my head. I didn't think that the proposal was going to happen in book two. I'll say that straight yeah. away. Yeah. Um, so I was a wee bit surprised at that point. And I, but I did always think that it was it was like the, the end game, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and and the whole sort of story. Um but when when it happened when it did in book two, I was just like, all right. <laughs> oh, I can understand now. <laughs> well that was one of the things I was trying to get in terms of seeing seeing as from the couple's point of view was what next? You know, mm-hmm. so okay, so right, they've done a second, the two of them have done a second season. This time, both of them are red coats. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is, you know, they're not even thinking about it. Now they're engaged, they want to try and get regular work. Will they find regular work? Will they Will they be asked to come back next year? Do they yeah. want to come back next year? If they mm-hmm. do, what do they want to achieve out of it, you know? And um, and, I th- and that was a sort of question I was wanting to hang over people's, he- people's heads at the yeah. end of the book. Because, and also the thing was, when I was speaking, uh, when I first came up with the idea of the books, initially I was just going to do the one. Yeah. Um, and the thing was, this was Joe, you know, God rest him, he's no longer with us. Um, he said to me, he said, no, you don't. You were there for three seasons. Mm-hmm. Do three books, you know. And uh, <laughs> and um, and it, 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 it's, it was almost like, and I, I just thought it was like, if I stopped it, book, it wasn't until, I, when I stopped doing book two, I thought, there's some unfinished questions there, yeah. you, know, you know, because it, it wasn't bringing it to a natural conclusion. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were talking about maybe in terms of a drama, yeah. then they could, pro- they could probably hold, stop it there. But mm-hmm. in terms of, this was being built as a trilogy, so you had to find ways of keeping it going. Yeah, and sometimes when, you know, when you're writing a book like that, um, I know from speaking to other uh, authors that they start out and it's one book, you know, that they're going to write. Um, yeah. And they themselves perhaps don't see, you know, that, no, I need to take that to the next step. And, yeah. it's, you know, it's maybe like a proofreader or an editor or something, someone like that that says to them, you know, you can't leave that there. You know, yeah. there has to be something that goes on after that, you know. And while one-off book, you know, is, is fine, but I sometimes find myself reading books um, and it comes to the end and I think to myself, but I wonder what happens next. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, um, I, mean I, th- I, I think I, I think the other just the deciding factor for me in writing three books was I was there for three seasons, yeah. so it has to be three stories about three seasons. Mm-hmm. It had to it had to be that way, and also the thing was in terms of the progression of the of the of the, the main characters. You know, you had to sort of look at it like you know these things. If you stopped at book two. Then people say, "What's happened next?" Well, well sorry, there's not going to be another story. What? Uh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot. The thing is, since the, when the, when the books came out, the amount of support I received from so many different people, and I'm not just talking about my Butlins family. Uh-huh. I'm talking about other people I, d- I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. The support I got was humbling and amazing. It was fantastic, and the thing was, they were so supportive of me. Um, I mean, likes of my um, the, my Open university tutor Emma, she was a very big encouragement to me with the writing as well. And um, she was basically doing everything to help me to be trying to get, put the creative thing in, in front mm-hmm. of me. And um, because those people weren't supporting me, I thought, 
for, for, for them being so supportive, they, they were asking me the same question you're asking. You know, what mm-hmm. happens? I, I can't yeah. wait to see what happens next. And I thought, well, I have to do this. I have to make the, the, the right conclusion for the story. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, be truthful to the characters, but also be fair to the people that have been so good to me over those over the previous books. You know, yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to let them down. And then um, that's the, the second book was certainly pretty straightforward to, to put together mm-hmm. in terms of what happened. But the thing was, once I got into the third one, I then had to start thinking, I've got to get this right. Yeah. You know, and, and that, to be honest, I kind of got a little bit scared mm-hmm. at that point because there were so many people backing me on this. I just didn't mm-hmm. want to let them down. Yeah. But, but certainly the thing with them, I know that the people, the thing with the second book, there will be, there will be people that enjoy the first one that weren't mm-hmm. so keen on the second one because they looked at the first one as just pure nostalgia. Yeah. You know, excuse me, they didn't want, they didn't want to go down the romance part of it, which is mm-hmm. understandable. You know, I mean, I, I can fully understand that. But the thing was, in terms of the story, I had to put that into consideration. You know, first, yeah. not everybody would like that. In terms of the story, I felt it was necessary. And um, that's why I thought, well, the first one's a romantic book. You can't put, you, you've got to continue the romance element. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I must admit, because obviously, I mean, had there not been a second book, that's the point, I think, where I would be questioning book one. Yeah. You know, oh, but you know, what, what happens, you know, did did they stay together? Did did they not stay together? You know, Um, and the fact that you alluded to, you know, the possibility of, you know, going back, obviously you'd be going back on your second year as your head coach, but then, you know, your wife would be going back as a first year head coach. And I thought, you know, if, if that ended with book one, there is so many unanswered questions there. So, you know, you, you need to, you need to take it forward, you know. Well, well I, I think I think that's the, the the thing. I mean, book one was all about coming of age, mm-hmm. right? And book two is basically a young man who's basically now looking, saying, right, he, he's comfortable in his skin as a red coat. Now it's a case of what does he want? What direction does he want in terms of of the job or in terms of you know what yeah. ambitions does he have on there? And from his personal point of view, where does he see this going? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when he's going along the road, he'll see obstacles coming along his way something might be a bit more sinister than others, you know? And yeah. um, and at the end, they've got answers to, it's, it's almost like saying, you know, here's, you know, this is our, this is our next chapter. You know, yeah. I keep, I keep, I keep, we keep referring to it, saying, you know, this is the next chapter, you know, mm-hmm. here's to the next chapter. And um, it, it was, it was all, it was all, I mean, I hate using the word journey, but to be honest, it's basically, that's basically what it was. Yeah. Um, the journey personally and professionally, mm-hmm. because he's, because he's sort of had his foot in the door in such a brilliant professional environment, he wanted to try and take it to the next level. He wanted to be get himself to a level where he couldn't go any further. Yeah. Um, but certainly in terms of the fact that he finds he finds someone else in his mm-hmm. life, he didn't want to lose that, and he wanted to build on that at the same time. Yeah. The other the other great thing uh, for me with both books as well is that it helps me to form a really vivid picture of if you like holiday camp life. You that, know, was idea. Um, that was the idea. That was the idea. Know, and the, the, I can, I, in, in my mind's eye, when I'm reading it, you know, I can see the red coats walking up and down and, you know, saying hello to people and all that, you know, all that kind of interaction that we talk about, you know, and I can see all that. But at the same time, I think to myself, do you know what? I could never have done that. You know, I, I would have loved the entertaining part of it. Yeah. But see that sort of 24 7 with a smile on your face. You know that just wouldn't have been. <laughs> the, th- the thing with the red coat job, they also always associate the glamour element with it. You yeah. know, 
Which, which there was. I'm not denying it for one second. There was, you know, especially when you're signing autographs at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. You know that you know you feel like a celebrity. You know, yeah. but for every time you for every time you were doing a performance on stage or taking part in the record show or being uh, over the top in terms of the competitions, on the other side of the equation, you had things like calling the bingo or doing yeah. the whist drive. The whist drive is, I mean, that's that's up there with amusement park. You know, <laughs> oh what. Um, uh, the whist drive is it's almost like, it was almost like a punishment detail but the thing I mean you had to learn how to play whist you know you know somebody you're on the whist drive so well, I don't know how to play whist pack mm. of cards there's the rules you've got 10 minutes you know <laughs> and, they, and they played it down the quiet lounge and the thing was whilst there was a lot of people loved that kind of stuff you know mm-hmm. the thing is even though you might want to be, you know, there's people at the other end of the camp having great fun and doing X, yeah. Y, and Z, and you're sitting there saying, right, sit at the tables, we'll dish out the cards, or who's who's got such and such a hand and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, but the thing is, it was always, you got to rem- remember, you take, you take this sort of rough with the smooth, you're going to have some details, which is like getting teeth pulled. Yeah. And other times you're going to be doing things that's going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, it's people who might be doing things like, right, the amusement park was one example. Um you had the whist drive was another one. Bingo, it was what you ever made. Is bingo doing bingo was whatever you made it to, wanted mm-hmm. it to be, because you can be very sort of Mister Formal when yeah. you call the bingo. Whereas you can actually still have to go crazy at the bingo at mm-hmm. the same time. So it's just you how good it was was how what you put into it. Yeah. Because um, depending who was on duty, but the thing is though there were people that turned up at the bingo who were diehards. You yeah. had to follow the rules. And if you deviated, and, or, or even the other, my other worst case scenario was being put on the sequence dancing. Oh, my goodness. We, we had our own phrases for that, which I'm not going to use. Um, <laughs> it, I was put on it once because the thing was, even though I came from a ballroom dancing background, my parents were very much sequence dancing. right? Yeah. And they knew I avoided it like the plague. And then... And um, whenever you know, whenever they found out, said, right, um, my ju- I told him my duty was going to be on. I'm, I'm doing a sequence dance, and he went, "Yes," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and the thing was, is I'm playing the. Re- it wasn't a case of a DJ unit. Mm-hmm. I'm playing. I'm playing a record, and the thing is, it's, it's like the, you know, there's things like the the Rialto two, the syncopated samba, the ragtime swing, you know. Mm-hmm. And my dad saying to me, you know, saying, right, remember, you've got to play it in two halves. Two halves, right? Okay. Uh, so you play it once, you play it two halves, right? And then you see you're playing it when and an MC comes up saying you don't do it like that, you do it like this. And you're trying to keep your tempers at a sort of reasonable level. Thank goodness I only had to do it once. You know, <laughs> but in sequence dancing was never a favorite activity. You know, I always try to avoid that. Yeah. And she I don't know if this would have been you know, something that would maybe not occurred for you, but you might know people would have had occurred for. If you were asked to do something, um, for I don't know, demonstrate high diving, for instance, mm-hmm. and you had a fear of heights, did you have to go through with it and overcome that fear, or were there allowances made? They don't make allowances, right? For a start, they do not make allowances. I mean, for a start, um. One of the favourite activities amongst the campers in those days was to hunt the pirate, uh-huh. hunt Captain Blood, you know. And I am not kidding; this is true. Um, the, the the red coats would usually lead the kids throughout the camps hunting for Captain Blood, you know. And the kids would, would start off by shouting, "We want Captain Blood! We want Captain Blood!" And see, by the end, they're shouting, "We want blood!" 
<laughs> and and the thing was at the end once they do find captain blood he doesn't get thrown in the pool but the red coats get thrown in the pool right. as well no I'm, I'm not just talking i'm talking about likes of the lifeguards get through are throwing the red coats in the pool as well uh-huh. just one problem i swam like i did fish right <laughs> and i've got and, and they're going to put me in with my my, 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 my clobber on uh-huh. and the thing is I, I was paranoid about the idea about saying i said please god just Listen, if you're going to throw me in, throw me in the shallow end, please. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that was a worry. Um, but the thing was, a lot of people used to view red coats as being indestructible. Yeah. And the thing was, you were meant to show no fear. You know, if they, if you, like, for example, if I was, um, there was one time when the army boys came to the camp and they set up all these big obstacle courses things. And the thing was, um, one of the things you had to climb one of those walls. Mm-hmm. The big climbing frames, yeah, and um, and so you got these big. I think they were marines standing at the top, and I'm going up there. And the thing was, I had, I've had, I had no power in my legs. I got mm-hmm. halfway up, and I just couldn't go any further up. And I'm hanging on, trying my best not to fall off. And this soldier at the tab, he's standing in a big building block, shaking me like that, you know. <laughs> and I, I, to say I was mouthing not what you call red coat like language at the time. <laughs> and and the thing was. You, whilst you, you, um, when they do certain things, you are expected to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, like I mentioned before, about when we're talking about the amusement park, the amusement park, and mm-hmm. um, when we we're talking about doing things, you know, the, the the waltz and stuff like that. Yeah, I my, I was not the best on those. Those are the rides I usually had to avoid. But uh-huh. if a kid wanted me to take them on there, I couldn't say no. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing you could never say no to a camper, regardless of how old they were, especially yeah. if you were being volunteered for a certain thing. I mean. When you get volunteered to try something out in a competition, you're expected to do it. In the 82 season, I was asked to give disco dancing, dancing demonstrations. Yeah. And and um, I'd never done any disco dancing before in my life, but I had to learn how to do it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I suppose because of your dancing background, people would probably have naturally thought that, you know, you would be good at that anyway. Well, but, but see, the thing was, I don't, know, I don't know how it came across, but people used to think I was a professional. Mm-hmm. Right. And the thing was, whilst we almost became professional, almost, but we weren't actually professional. But the thing is, mm-hmm. we did try and create a professional performances whenever we went. And um, I mean, one example was one of my pals from the, the 82 season. Um, we basically got together a few years ago and we were putting performances on, charity performances on yeah. for, the, um, for the residential homes. Mm-hmm. And um, they were doing the thing, we were going out amongst the people in Dunoon and she was getting some publicity getting on. And then she announced to the she announced to the press that there will be a sing, people singing Brat Pack songs, and there will be a, a, a dance demonstration a, a dance demonstration by a semi professional dance couple. <laughs> and I said to my wife, I think they're talking about us. <laughs> and ended ended up um, ended up the we had to, my wife had never done anything like that before, mm-hmm. right? And I had to try and teach her or, or learn myself how to do the Argentine tango. Right. <laughs> so I had to spend. First, an hour before breakfast, going through Argentine tango practice, you know, <laughs> and uh, we had to try and get do that on the on for the for the show. We had basically yeah. a crash course, and the thing was, red coats were always used to being thrown at the deep end, mm-hmm. and you could never walk, you couldn't walk away and say, "Oh, sorry, I can't do that." You know, mm-hmm. that was just that was just not in the makeup, you know. Yeah, well, that's actually quite a nice wee point for us to finish, um, since mm-hmm. our hour is almost up. <laughs> Time flies; um, <laughs> it certainly does. Um, you know. I'm really looking forward to to getting into book three, um, mm-hmm. and once I've I've completed that, we'll we'll get another one of these wee chats together. Absolutely. Um, 
as I said, uh, it'll certainly, I'm not sure exactly when it'll go out on the radio. Hopefully, maybe this Thursday on the guest podcast or yep. the Thursday after. Um, but it goes up onto the, the Podbean um, channel as well anyway. So there's always a chance to catch it. But once again, Mr. McGrothy, thank you very much for your entertaining wit. Oh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. <laughs> and I'm so I'm, I'm so glad this thing's been recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you have a great week and thanks very much for your time. No problem. I'll see you again. Ta-da. Cheers. Bye. Bye.